The Utah Open Source Foundation brings the Utah logs home. Feel free to listen live at stream.utos.org or catch the audio afterward at podcast.utos.org. The bandwidth is provided by Center 7. The following presentation, Grid Backup, was given on March 12, 2009 by Sean Wilden at the Utah Python User Group. Visit their site at utahpython.org. I should probably introduce myself first. Um, I uh, do not write any Python in my day job. In fact, uh, of late, I really don't write code in my day job at all, which is rather sad, but um, there it is. Um, I work for IBM, um, have for 12 years now, and uh, did a few other things before that. I've worked in a lot of different environments. Um, I wrote uh, MathEd software for a few years. Um, I wrote uh, point-of-sale systems. I worked on embedded systems. Uh, I've got a few lines in the Linux kernel. Uh, <laughs> done done a, a whole variety of different things. I probably would characterize myself primarily as a uh, C++ programmer, although over the years I've probably actually written more Java than uh, than C++ at this point. But since... What's that? <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, bo both time and lines of code, right? So, um, and, and possibly functionality as well. Um, but uh, especially since for the last year or so, I've I've moved into a role where I'm, I guess I guess to a, a large degree, kind of a, a a consultant to architects who are leading projects. So I don't actually write code anymore uh, very much. I spend all my time on the phone. Uh, spend a lot of time in Microsoft Word and, and Excel. So I, I just felt like I had to do something else. So I decided to, uh, to start this project, something I've been thinking about actually for many years. Um, and uh, so I finally decided to take the plunge about, oh, about two months ago and uh, really focus on trying to build something. So the, the problem that I want to solve, and I should mention, by the way, that there is way more content in these slides than we have time to talk about. So I'm just going to fly over most of it and uh, rely on you guys to ask questions about the stuff that you're in interested in. But, but first of all, the, uh, the basic problem that I want to solve is that uh, backups suck, right? <laughs> Everybody here have, have good backups? Tested? You know, very reliable. Okay, so we got we got maybe uh, what's that? About uh, fifteen percent. So it's really kind of simple. So I think that's probably the case too. Right. When it gets more complex, it's harder. Yes, and and uh, the if you uh, and and this is in a, this is in a room full of geeks, right? Who uh, have our, our, we live on our computers? Everything important to us is on our computers, and and so we're we're maybe much much more likely to, to worry about backups than the typical person. Um, my uh, sister-in-law called me two weeks ago and said, "Hey, my computer is giving me an error when I turn it on. It says no system disk found." 
And I said, well, that's bad. Um, <laughs> bring it to me, and I'll take a look at it. And so I did, and in fact, her hard drive has completely died. Uh, when you apply power, it does not even spin up. And she has um, three small children that she's adopted over the last three and a half years. Uh, she got them all as, as infant, infants, and uh, all of their photos are on that drive. Um, she has a, a handful that she's actually printed out, but by and large, all of her baby pictures are in, in purely digital form and exist only on that drive. So I'm, I'm actually trying to help her find, you know, data recovery services to go and try and get the get that off there, and hopefully they can. But I think I think her situation is the typical one, right? People do not have any kind of backups because it's too hard for lots of reasons. Um, you might try to back up on CDs or DVDs. They're too small. They're unreliable. Um, it just doesn't doesn't work. Um, trying to use a, a, an extra hard drive is probably the best option, but um, particularly if it happens to be in the machine, odds are really good that something that takes out your main hard drive is going to take out that data as well. And it really doesn't work very well. Um, and besides being being hard, you know, being uh, difficult technically to accomplish. It's just too much effort, right? People don't think about it. They don't want to think about it. They don't do it. So my thought is that uh, we need to find a way to make it easy. Um, and uh, the thing I noticed several years ago is that as hard drives keep getting bigger and bigger, most everybody has tons of unused storage, right? Maybe not us. You know, I, I'm, I'm uh, frequently, I've got two and a half terabytes in my home file server now and I actually need to go buy another uh, one terabyte disk and, and toss in there pretty soon. But uh, you know, the average person goes out and they buy a machine, especially a desktop machine, has 250, 300 gigs of storage and they use you know, 50 or 60. And so there's a lot, of, a lot of spare storage out there. So if we could find a way to be able to do backups to all of our friends and relatives computers, that would give us automated, off-site, uh, reliable backups if we could, if we could uh, find a way to do that. So that's what I decided I wanted to try and do. So these are, these are some of my, my goals. Um, let me talk a little bit about uh, just a couple of them. Um, resiliency, I, I think, is important. And by, by resilient, what I mean is, as it says on the slide, doing stupid things should not cause major disruption. And because I fully expect the kind of, of users that I'm aiming this at to do stupid things on a fairly regular basis. Right? Things like, for example, uh, deleting the entire local uh, directory tree where the tool stores all of its book bookkeeping information. Right? So we need to be able to recover well from those. Um, Cross-platform is also very important to me, uh, at least uh, three platforms, and those are Linux, OS X, and Windows, because those are the three platforms that kind of touch my life. Um, all my machines are Linux, my wife's got a, a Mac, and uh, most everybody else in my family, of course, uses uh, Windows. Um, the the uh, Second to last bullet there, I should also mention um, quick. Now this is this is something that I've actually put perhaps too much effort into is trying to make sure 
that I can have a time machine-like uh, concept of, of backup snapshots so that you can, you can have a view of, of maybe daily, maybe even more frequently than daily snapshots. And, and the snapshot should be as, as narrow a slice of time as possible. Whenever you take a, a backup, um, unless you have something like um, you know, a, a file system supported snapshotting mechanism or LVM or something like that where you can, where you can kind of freeze the state of the system, what you really get is not a snapshot, but kind of a, a little slice in time of the evolution of the file system, right? If it takes you two hours to back up, then uh, what you've actually got is, you know, some files from early in that process and some files from late in that process. So I want to, uh, to narrow that time as much as possible. And uh, when we're talking about backing up over the internet, um, that imposes some pretty, uh, pretty interesting problems. And uh, so I, I've put an awful lot of time into thinking about how to, how to manage those. Some of the challenges, I, I mentioned that uh, I'm trying to aim the, the solution towards, uh, you know, uh, technically um, the average computer user, right? Uh, not, not very technically adept people. So we have to be able to expect them to, uh, to do dumb things from time to time. Um, it needs to be very easy, and uh, anything that, that they're asked to do has to be very simple and very easy. Um, I'm also assuming home computers. Now, there's nothing that says this, this system couldn't be used in different environments, but this is the one that I'm aiming at. And uh, so some of the, some of the uh, limitations, I guess the biggest one really is the, the uh, high-speed, quote-unquote, Internet connections that we all have. Um, actually, lots of people have pretty good Internet connections on the downstream side, right? But the upstream tends to be very, very bad. Um, the third bullet there on the bottom is, a, is an interesting one. Um, it wasn't so much an issue when I first started thinking about this and conceptualizing the solution. These days, more and more of our, our uh, machines are not desktop machines. And again, I'm talking about home users, but laptops, right? And so they may not always be connected, may not always be turned on. And uh, that's a challenge that I have some ideas about how to address, but uh, it, it's, it's a difficult one. So um, some of the key decisions. Um, the, uh, the first one, which is, is maybe a little bit uh, controversial, I suppose, but this, this goes back to making the configuration process as easy as possible. The easiest thing to do in terms of defining what to back up is just get all of it, right? If we back up everything, then we will have whatever is important. Um, if we ask the user to uh, specify what files matter and what files they need to back up, you know, they don't know where stuff is at, they don't know what matters um, in, in, uh, in many cases. However, and, and uh, I, I got to, uh, to really benefit from the underlying all my data uh, grid system, which I'm building on top of, and I'll talk about that. But it has a, a nice characteristic that uh, if a file is stored in the grid once, then any other machine that tries to store that same content won't have to store it again. So uh, puts are item potent, 
I guess is a, a way to say that. And uh, so that actually, I think, really decreases the, the pain of, of doing a full backup because you know, if you're storing, if you're backing up 20 Windows XP machines, which, you know, is going to be the, the, the most common case. What's that? How do you ensure that the common data doesn't get removed from the grid? Um, that's, uh, that's good. Let me, let me come back to that in a minute. Okay. But that's a good question. Um, and it's actually one that, that I would say is not uh, not fully solved. So, yeah. So there's going to be some differentiation between them, but uh, a lot of the files are going to be in common, right? And uh, and so that that really uh, saves. Um, also, for dealing with the, the slow upstream bandwidth problem, um, I also. Uh, wanted to be able to support versioning, and, and specifically incremental uh, difference-based versioning, so that when files, changes, uh, when files change, I only have to upload the, uh, the difference between the old and the new rather than the whole thing. And, and I wanted to be able to do that efficiently, and also to, to do that without keeping local copies, extra copies of the, of the files, which is kind of an interesting challenge. Um, Change detection, a uh, fairly obvious way to, to handle that. And yeah, I, I, guess, uh, I guess the one other, other thing that's, that's probably good to talk about here is that because uploading is inherently a slow process, um, I decided early on that we, I had to separate the scanning, the decision of what to back up from the process of, of doing the upload. So, so I have this uh, scan fast, upload slow concept which also introduces a lot of challenges, but it has enough benefits, I think, to be worth it. So I'll just talk a little bit about, uh, about the language choice. Um, like I said, I consider myself really a C++ programmer, um, but I decided to use this uh, Python for this, um, partly because I wanted to learn it, but uh, what I noticed when I started looking at the, at least in the open source space, of the the tools out there that are somewhat similar and, and related to what I wanted to do, you know, things that I can steal code from, um, I found that all of them are implemented in Python. So I, I don't know if it's just a particularly good tool for for this kind of thing or what, but it, it seems to be uh, a unanimous decision by the, uh, the the open source developers who are independently working on various things. Uh, related to to uh, this sort of backup, um, they're all in Python. So um, Matt Harrison actually point, pointed me towards these guys, the All My Data, um, and uh, they do some they do some pretty cool stuff. Um, they're a commercial backup service provider, but also all of their source code is open. They're uh, entirely open source based, and uh, they they don't have they don't have any proprietary code in their commercial system. Even it's just uh, a commercial service that they provide. So what they they provide is this uh, this actual the uh, the cool part actually of of grid backup. They provide the grid. Um, they have this uh, least authority file system on top of a distributed grid. So they um, use forward error correction. So they take every file that's being inserted into the grid, uh, split it into n pieces, 
uh, using Reed Solomon coding so that only M of those are required to recover the file. Sam? They, they segment the file first, and then they apply the uh, they apply apply the Reed Solomon coding to the segments. But is, is the segmenting the whole file? You segment on the whole file, or can you do this in a streaming one? Um, the uh, design fundamentally does allow streaming. The current implementation doesn't. Okay. And and there are actually some some characteristics of their file format. That makes streaming difficult. Uh, one of the one of the things they're working on, um, going to be working on probably over the next six months or so, is uh, some uh, some changes to their file format that allow for streaming. The the basic issue is that uh, they do the segmentation, and then when they when they do the uh, the forward error correction coding on each segment. They embed in that a hash tree of the entire file, right? So it's really good for for uh, integrity, but it means that you have to process the entire file before you can upload anything. That fact, the fact that I that I can't do streaming uploads, really also uh, affected significantly some of my backup design decisions. Good question, though. Um, so the other. Uh, Kind of important concept when in uh, in Tahoe, I guess Tahoe is is the design. Uh, actually, Tahoe two. Apparently, there was a Tahoe one which has been superseded, a Tahoe three which has been discarded, and uh, and they've they've implemented Tahoe two, and then there was uh, there was a couple of versions before that that were named after some other place. Um, I think they were, you know, partying at Tahoe and came up with the ideas or, or something. So anyway, um, another idea that's important in Tahoe is the idea of capability-based access control. So these caps. A cap is a string, a long string. It's a URL. <laughs> that, and it's long because it contains not only location data, but also the access control data, specifically the keys needed to uh, encrypt, or rather to decrypt, or, or to uh, perform various operations on, uh, on the files stored in the grid. So um, they support various kinds of, of architectures. The allmydata.com system, actually, all of the servers are operated by the commercial service. So it's more of a traditional you know, client to server uh, relationship. Um, I'm focused more on the idea of a friend net, right, where each machine is both a client and a storage server. Um, pretty uh, obvious, I think, uh, how that's structured. So the uh, other interesting thing about uh, Tahoe is their least authority file system, uh, based on the, like it says, the principle of least authority, that uh, it should be structured so that you can give users no more privileges than they absolutely need in order to accomplish the task. Pretty common uh, principle in, in security uh, theory. So they, they built a, a file system on top of the grid that provides these least authority semantics. And it's pretty interesting. There's uh, three different kinds of capabilities, read, write, and verify. and uh, so I can give you a, a, a URL pointing to a directory, 
you know, in the in the Tahoe grid, that uh, gives you read access or or write access or possibly only verify access. You know, whatever whichever URL I give you, that's the capability you have, and it's also transitive. So if I give you that for a root directory, you can actually uh, you have that same set of uh, privileges on all you know subdirectories and files, unless I decide to break the chain at some point. So it's pretty it's pretty flexible, and the uh, the crypto is pretty cool. Now um, I, I didn't mention with what I do with IBM, um, I, it's very it's uh, very related to to security and uh, cryptography. I've been working on smart card type systems for uh, about 10 years. So I do a lot of crypto in my day job, and, and I find this, this stuff really, really fascinating. They, uh, they've structured their, their system, so these, these capability strings, given a write string, you can calculate the read string, and given the read string, you can calculate the verify string. Um, and as it says in the, the last bullet, if you don't have the right cap, it's uh, not just difficult but impossible to perform that operation on the file um, unless you can break uh, you know RSA and or AES uh, depending on the uh, on the specific type of, of capability so I decided not to use their file system though I think it's very cool um, but uh, it didn't really add a lot of value and the uh, the directory nodes within their file system are, as it says on the slide, expensive to create and modify, and it, it just it didn't fit in very well with uh, with what I wanted to accomplish. Um, as the slide mentions, the downside to not using the file system is that uh, they're they have some nice user space, you know some fuse modules, WinFuse and, and one on the Mac, and actually three on, the, on Linux, none of which work very well. Um, <laughs> that, uh, somebody, somebody needs to, to step up and fix that, by the way. It's probably not difficult at all to do. But um, anyway, so that, so that you, can, you can just mount you know, a directory from a Tahoe grid and uh, deal with it as, as though it's a local file system. So. Um, let me uh, actually let me back up for just a moment. The uh, sorry, what was what was your name? Mine? Yes, David. David. Okay, and you asked me about okay about uh, how do we ensure that the files don't get lost? Um, yeah, the all my data uh, system really hasn't solved that problem yet, or rather, they haven't solved the opposite problem, which is how do we know when we can get rid of stuff? Um, for the commercial operation, they do a, a mark and sweep garbage collection, right, on, on their distributed uh, store. For the uh, for FriendNets, the theory is that eventually they're going to implement an accounting system that provides a, a secure, decentralized way for storage servers to figure out how much storage. Uh, clients that are asking to store stuff with them. So how much storage is that client offering to others? Right? If I can accurately answer that question, then the storage server can make decisions, uh, fairness type decisions, about whether or not to accept new leases. Right? So it's a, it's a lease-based approach. Um, and and uh, 
That way, the storage servers can ensure fairness across the whole system. I'm not going to store data for you unless you're storing data for other people. And ultimately, uh, to have a fair system, you want to ensure that, that every storage server um, is uh, storing as much for others as it is, you know, has handed out for others to store. So it's, it's based on this, this idea of a lease. You know, a client requests to a storage server, will you store this for me? And the storage server says, yes, I will, for uh, 90 days. Right? And it is then up to the client to renew that lease. All right? And there's also the, the concept of a, a verification server uh, which can use these verify capabilities that I mentioned to validate that storage servers are actually honor, honoring their lease commitments right, to make sure that the data is still there. And there's some very clever uh, cryptographic stuff done uh, to allow that verification to be done without having to, to uh, retrieve the entire file. You can just do it by, by asking for pieces. And uh, it also, you know, the, the verify cap does not give the verify server any ability to read the contents of the file. It's all encrypted. Okay, make sense? Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, sure. If there's a, uh, one of these potential files that every FTP has, mm-hmm. Well, first of all, remember the the forward direction, the, the forward um, error coding. Um, so, the idea is obviously that that file is split into ten pieces that are stored in ten different places, and you so as long as three of them are available, you can retrieve the file. Right, right. That's that's the idea anyway. It does. Well, not seven. The uh, right. The uh, as this as this says, the the it expands the data by a factor of n over m. So uh, three and a third, if you're using the the uh, three of ten scheme, is the expansion factor. Um, I think that's a little high. I think it's a little too pessimistic. The three of ten. I mean, in fact, probably my biggest contribution to the All My Data project so far has been a, a paper that I wrote on um, basically a statistical analysis of failure probabilities under, under various scenarios and uh, some work to figure out how to calculate given a, a target uh, reliability probability and some assumptions about the, about the reliability of the machines holding the data so that you can calculate what n and m should be. Actually, really the way it works is n you set to the number of peers in the grid, and then you calculate what m should be. There's also uh, another parameter that comes into play, which is based on the repairer process. There's a, an idea of a, a rep actually an implementation of a repairer process that goes out and checks and sees if all of the pieces that were distributed still exist. And if not, then it reconstructs the missing pieces and re-uploads them back out to the to the grid to try and keep the uh, the full ten pieces available. So when that paper suggests a different ratio, 
Well, it depends on it depends on on your assumptions about the reliability of the individual machines, and it depends on your target. And the reliability of the yeah, <laughs> yeah, that too. Does it do that based upon like a parity check, or how does it actually build that piece back? If you want to just quickly mention, not a rate rebuilding itself. Yeah, yeah, it's um, basically. Uh, Worst case, what it has to do in, say, a 3 of 10 scenario is download three pieces, reconstruct the file so it can regenerate all 10 pieces and, and then restore the missing ones. Um, you can actually improve on that a little bit in many cases. Uh, in, particularly, in, in particular, all my data, um, when they do the splitting, pieces 0, 1, and 2 are actually um, just the, the, there, there is uh, no calculation required to recom. They are basically just the pieces of the file, right? Split it into three pieces, so you can just concatenate them, and you have your file back. Um, so they they try to recover from those three pieces, and, and you don't necessarily even need to get all of those in many circumstances. So they try to be smart about it. Yeah, some three, right? Doesn't really matter which. It doesn't matter which three. That's the. Uh, Well, yeah, you're. I went too far. The um, yeah, the, the the idea is or the the way you should structure your your choices of n and m is n you should set to be the number of peers in the grid minus one. Um, that's by the way, I think one thing that um, needs to be fixed in Tahoe, at least for backup purposes, is that uh, it uses the local storage server as just another peer in the network. So the local machine may actually get a share, right? Um, which makes a lot of sense in the, in the kind of general storage case, but for backup, it doesn't. Oh, yes. I completely forgot about that. I'll, I'll try to do that. I was going to mention that I know there's a similar system that's taken a variation on this. It's only calculated slices. And the idea is nobody can, if it's private data, nobody can snoop on your data because unless you have a certain number of pieces and the key to put them together, nobody having a piece of the data actually has anything. It's just generated data. Right. The comment is that there's another system that uh, slices the data up into pieces such that unless you have all of the pieces and the key, um, you cannot recover the data. Um, with, uh, with the All My Data system, without the key, the, which is embedded in the read cap or the write cap, again, you can't, uh, you can't get the data. Basically, the way they do that is just by AES encrypting the whole thing and, uh, and then doing the, the, er the error coding. Is there any way to accommodate nodes coming and going uh, as opposed to just like a node going down because it, it failed? Like you have a friend that moves. They're just not available, or you have two friends that want to join in. Right. So, so the question is, does the system accommodate nodes that join and leave? And uh, the answer is that there is a plan in place to support a reallocation uh, operation. Um, in some of the, uh, the mathematical analysis that I did, though, I decided I think that's a bad idea. I, and and I, I don't want to 
it would take a lot of time to get into the, to the reasons why, but I'm actually uh, planning the next time the subject comes up on the mailing list uh, to, uh, to make the arguments that I think we should not do that, that rather we should just let the, uh, the repairer uh, take care of noticing that uh, files have, you know, shares have gone away and, and do, do the recovery that way. Um, yeah. So, any other questions about uh, Tahoe? All right. So let me talk. Uh, th that's actually probably the more interesting stuff. <laughs> um, let me talk a little bit about about the uh, the grid backup system that I'm trying to build on top of the uh, Tahoe grid, though. So there's there's three parts to my uh, my backup. The stuff that I that I store. First of all, the backup snapshots. Remember, I, I talked about wanting to get this very narrow uh, view in time of the state of the, of the file system to make it as, as consistent as possible. And, and this is particularly important since um, over a slow link, if you're, get, if you're uploading tens or hundreds of, of gigabytes of data, your initial backup may literally take months right, to complete. It, it could take years. <laughs> Um, I, I calculated, for example, if I were to back up my home file server over my home uh, cable modem connection, it would take 1.8 years. <laughs> right, that's with no new data, right. So, uh, so uh, and, and of course, the concept of a, of a multi-year or even a multi-day snapshot is just not meaningful. Okay, so the next question I, I think I have is this. Probably you're not going to be back, backing up everything on your system. You're going to pick and choose what you're backing up. So that statement that you just made about 1.8 years, that includes every bit of data you've ever owned. But if you did that for real in real life, you probably would only back up a third of what you really own or something like that. So the question is, in reality, wouldn't you pick and choose what to back up rather than anything and backing up everything? Um, for uh, for more sophisticated users, the answer is yes, and and I I do plan to make it configurable so that you can pick what to back up and what not to. For everyone else, though, um, I really want them to be able to just install it and let it run. And uh, so the, the idea is that instead of making them pick and choose, I'm going to back up everything, but I'm going to prioritize, right? Try to be a little bit intelligent about the stuff I back up in what order so that hopefully I can get the most important stuff first. Um, that's, uh, as, I, as I said, that there's, some, there's some debatable uh, assumptions in there. But uh, that's the, the direction I've gone. So backup snapshots are basically just a snapshot of the state of the file system at uh, a point in time that's as compressed as I can make it. Um, an initial backup really shouldn't take more than an hour or two to do the, the, the initial full system scan. And the reason it takes that long is that it has to do, it has to hash every file on the system. Um, so that, that takes a little time. Um, incremental backups after that initial one has been done should only take a few minutes. And, and in fact, on, on my home desktop machine, uh, which has about 300 gigs of, of stuff on it, it takes just over two hours to do the initial scan. 
and it takes about seven minutes to do a, to do a rescan to detect changes. Now, ideally for uh, uh, Windows and, and Mac systems, um, I want to implement a, a different version of the scanner which uses the provided uh, ability to monitor the file system and, and not have to do scans at all. Um, and hopefully, actually there's a guy working on an, on an FS events uh, infrastructure for Linux. Um, and uh, so hopefully that will get done and get adopted. He's gotten a little bit of pushback, though, mainly because uh, the reason that he wants this, the, the guy that's building the FS events stuff, is to implement virus scanners. And uh, so he, he's gotten a lot, of, uh, a lot of flack from the kernel developers who, who really uh, don't want to even think about you know, Linux maybe having viruses and, and would much rather focus on closing off uh, security holes and making it impossible that way rather than making efficient virus scanning. But um, the, the system that... What's that? Hammer FS. And that, that would be another, another way to approach that is, is with snapshotting. But even with snapshotting, you'd still have to snapshot the system and then scan the snapshot. Um, the idea with, uh, with FS events is if you can get notifications of every file that changes, then you don't have to scan. Right. When it comes time to, to make your snapshot, you just look at your little log of stuff that's changed in the last hour or two, and that's all you have to examine. Um, can you? Okay. Right, so just so it will actually give you a delta. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so then the uh, the second item here is the content snapshots, which is you know the data in the files. So the backup snapshot contains all of the metadata. The content snapshot contains the data, and then I have uh, link files that connect the metadata to the the content. Um, and uh, a key point is all of the above is stored in the in the grid. Okay, there's also copies that will be that are kept locally to help improve performance and and uh, make things a little nicer. But uh, if all of it gets deleted, that's okay because we can just get it back from the grid and uh, and proceed to do the next backup or, or restore or whatever. Um, all of the, the these oh, sure. What's that? Where does encryption fit into this? Are, are you encrypting everything? Everything that goes up is Everything is encrypted. Yes. And actually I should uh, just as a brief aside, I should talk about one cool thing that uh, all my data does with, uh, with their encryption. Um, if you're going to encrypt something, they're using AES, you know, perfectly adequate choice. But the, there's always the question of, well, where do you get the key? Right? Where does the key come from? And uh, they have a, a very interesting choice uh, for that that has a lot of nice properties. Um, the encryption key is the hash of the file content. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's worth, uh, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but it's worth thinking a little bit about the, the properties of that particular choice. And it turns out to be really nice. Um, if you already have the file, then you can get the key to uh, to decrypt it. Um, otherwise, 
You can't. If you delete your file, you can't. So there needs to be a, a link to that somewhere. And actually, in, in the case of my backup system, uh, those keys end up in the, uh, in the link files. Actually, the, the file hashes go into the backup snapshots. And then those are connected to the other pieces of data needed to, to recover the files in the link files. So the question is, if, if you have a, uh, a complete failure, um, where do you get the information needed to restore? And, and actually, this is something that I probably should have put in the slides. Um, the, uh, I, I said I don't use the uh, Tahoe file system. That's not entirely true. Um, I do use a top-level directory, a grid-based directory, to store all of the, the snapshots and, the, and these various other, other uh, files that make up the, the backup. So as long as you have the information needed to connect to the grid and to get to that directory, then you have everything needed to do the restore. And so my, uh, and the, uh, in the information we're talking about ends up being um, about a 200-character string. Okay, so my uh, my plan, and I haven't gotten anywhere near to implementing this yet, but my plan is to have the uh, the initial backup process and actually the installation process uh, prompt the user for their email address and uh, and to email them this, and and I'm I'm going to have to include you know some some clear warnings, uh, whatever I can do to try and make people understand this thing that's being emailed to you is your it's it's all your backups it's everything if you have this you can restore if you don't have this you can't if someone else has this they can get all your data <laughs> right um, so exactly what's the best way to handle that I, d I don't know I mean, we could just have them print it out and tell them take the paper and put it in your safe deposit box or, or something so, am I correct then if, if I have a an operating system, several common applications, and I told it to back it up, it's going to hash it, it's going to see on the server, oh, they've already got all those files, and it's really not going to copy anything other than to say, oh, yeah, we know that you have those files that we've already got on the server. Right, right. Now, I, I should mention, by the way, that that's not the default mode of operation for Tahoe. Um, by default, when... Um, you might want to the oh, thank you. Yeah, so the question is, uh, so if, uh, if my system has a bunch of common applications and, and data, uh, when I do a backup, is the, is the system going to notice that you know, those files are already in the grid and not bother backing them up again? And the answer is yes, within my design. Um, no, within Tahoe's infrastructure generally. The reason no generally is they feel that that's a privacy risk, and, and, and they have a point. Right there's some there's some uh, some level of risk if if you look at it in the in the right way of someone being able to find out that you have a copy of a given file 
they have to already have the file contents in order to be able to figure that out, but they can do that. Um, so by default, uh, the All My Data system introduces a, 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 what do they call it? They call it a convergence key that is an additional bit of data that's fed into the hashing process so that my hash for a given file is different from your hash for that same file, right? And, uh, and that then drives them to look like they're completely different within the, within the system. Um, I plan, I, I'm assuming uh, a friend net environment um, I'm assuming that it's acceptable to, and I'll, I'll make it an option, but I'm assuming in general it's acceptable to, to deal with that minor privacy risk, and it's worth it in exchange for the... Uh... Another question. Sure. As I'm working using CVS or whatever version of the system, occasionally you finally say, okay, we're getting to a release, and you take a snapshot of saying, okay, we're not delta, delta, delta anymore. We're going to take a solid snapshot of everything and call this an original file so that we're not dependent on how many deltas that could go bad. So so the question is uh, do we at some point stop building deltas and and uh, and and have a, a snapshot? Um, I guess it's not on this slide. Um, and the answer is is yes and particularly since um, because everything is encrypted in the grid, there is no way to reasonably do reverse deltas. If any of you are familiar with RDIF backup, uh, it's a great little tool. I use it all the time. Um, it, it structures things so that within the backup copy, the current version, the most recent backup, is there verbatim, right? All of the file contents are, are literally there in a directory, and you can just copy them. All older versions are kept as deltas going back. They actually do have periodic snap, full snapshots just to make sure that stuff doesn't get lost. But um, because everything's encrypted, there's, there's really no way to do that. So I have to do forward deltas, right? So I, the original backup is a full snapshot. Everything else is just diffs from there, um, which, as this slide says, means there's some obvious risks that if one of those deltas somewhere back in the chain gets lost, then all newer versions of the file are no longer reconstructable. Okay, that's bad. Um, and actually, my, uh, my reliability paper goes into, uh, into that issue as well and how to calculate uh, what, the, what the risks are there exactly. Um, so, yeah, okay, here it is. On, on the bottom of this slide, I, I mentioned that I, I have a limit on the number of consecutive deltas allowed. After so many deltas, we do a full snapshot regardless, just to break that chain of, of risk, right, that a, a file will be lost. Um, and this slide just talks a little bit about the, the reason for, for using forward deltas um, based on the, the upload and download bandwidth required for backup and, and recovery and the, the storage required. Um, and, and really, it's because of the, uh, as it says there, given the, the double whammy kind of, of, of the forward, direction, forward error correction, 
um, encoding, and the uh, asymmetric bandwidth problem, uploading is enormously expensive, right? And so that's what I'm focused on on uh, minimizing. So, and uh, what I'm using, by the way, for for these deltas is uh, librsync. Um, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the rsync tool, and uh, librsync provides a a variation of that same protocol that is pretty slick. Um, basically, if you uh, take a file, you know, version five of a file, apply the signature algorithm, what you get out of this is a signature that represents this file. Now, that signature is about 1% of the size of the file, right? So it's fairly small. It's fairly easy to manage. Um, but given that small signature file, we can then take the next version and apply the delta algorithm and get the delta that will convert 5 to 6, right? We can generate that, that forward difference um, data. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when we do the when we do a backup, basically, um, modulo some some decisions about some files that we that are like small files. We don't bother with generating signatures because it'll be cheaper just to just to do a full backup every time and stuff like that. Um, the backup scanning process not only hashes the files, it also generates signatures for every file that's changed, so that we should always have that signature around. To be able to calculate a delta next time. I don't know. <laughs> I, I I've thought for years that there there must be a better way than re-downloading the whole package. So there's a, that's an improvement, right? So then you download the source code and compile. Azure uses a, a thing called Delta RPM, which is essentially using R sync to compare. Oh, do they? they cool. Cool. I know the the Debian world has, which is I use Debian have for a long time, um, is uh, actually I'm. I'm now using Ubuntu on my on my desktop machines, but still Debian um, has been talking about that idea for a long time, and they've even I, I think a few years ago they even started using um, applying by default the uh, the uh, um, R syncable option to the gzip gzip compression. So they're they're kind of I, I think they're kind of all set up to be able to do it. They just haven't. <laughs> Um, which I really wish they would. My, I uh, set up a machine for my father-in-law a few years ago, and he's on a very slow dial-up connection. I, I put uh, Ubuntu on his system because all he needed to do was, was surf an email, right? And, uh, and that way it would be very low maintenance for me. Um, trying to get patches downloaded, updates downloaded to that thing, though, is, is miserable. <laughs> I ended up finally uh, putting a cron job in there, that uh, dials in automatically at midnight every night <laughs> and just 
sits and downloads whatever it can get for four or five hours <laughs> and then hangs up the phone. Um, so it would, be, it would be very nice in that context to have, have uh, rsync updates. So. Okay, so uh, link files, uh, I don't want to say too much about these. They're, um, they're necessary because basically because it would be too much calculation, uh, too much effort during the, the, the time that I'm, I'm scanning the file system. I notice a file's changed. I have to hash it. I have to generate a signature. I can do those fairly quickly, but generating all of the information that's needed for a, a Tahoe read cap uh, would be significantly more work that would really slow down the scan. And so I decided that uh, I'm better off deferring that to the point in time when I do the actual upload, which then means that I have to have some way to link the, uh, the, the backup snapshot that has all of the metadata information to the content. Um, and I have kind of an interesting little data structure that I invented. And then after I'd invented it, I went out and, and uh, found a couple of papers about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, actually, they, the uh, the paper I found called them uh, uh, burst tr trees, uh, um, tries, right? However you want to pronounce that, T R I E. Um, but it, it is a it is a tri structure, and uh, the basic idea is just that I have this these uh, this directory of directories, and at the bottom there is this uh, file that actually contains the link data. And the, uh, the directory structure just corresponds actually to uh, a few bits at each level of the hash. So it makes it very efficient to traverse down. Um, the, the tree starts out being, complete, being flat, Right? There's just one top-level directory. Start throwing stuff into the, uh, the file. When the file reaches a, a defined maximum size, then I uh, remove the file, put a directory in its place, and take all the contents of the file and put it in files inside that directory. So that's why they call it a burst try, because they burst the, uh, the, the node into a, into a little subtree. Um, turns out to be very efficient. And it uh, works really well. Um, it also turns out to be very nicely balanced without any effort. Um, the reason for that, of course, is that hashes have this nice property. Secure hashes have this nice property that they're uniformly distributed. And uh, so you kind of get a, a nicely, very balanced tree for free. Some of the, the goals uh, for my, my Radix tree, um, I wanted to keep the, the link files fairly small. Um, I wanted to keep the directories of link files also fairly small because those directories are actually files in the grid, files that contain all of the you know the, the entries about the the, the uh, files that are in them, and uh, if the directory node gets to be too large, then that also gets to you know becomes a, a performance impact. Um, so the backup process uh, kind of works like this. There's two. Actually, I guess three components: the scanner and the uploader. Um, the scanner, which does the work of uh, finding out what changed in the file system, 
and then the uploader it, it, so it generates a, a queue of jobs to be uploaded, and then the uploader processes those jobs in priority order to try and get the uh, the most important stuff uploaded first. Um, and then, of course, there's the Tahoe node, which actually uh, is the interface to the to the grid. Um, talk too much about the the scanning algorithm. Um, other than a couple of decisions, um, the uh, the scanner does not cross device boundaries. Um, I, I decided that it, it makes more sense to specify each device that you want to back up separately. I didn't want to risk, you know, recursing into a network share, and uh, who knows, you know, how much you're backing up then. Um, and it does handle it does handle hard links uh, quite nicely. It, it recognizes hard links and and avoids wasting any extra effort on on multiple copies, multiple references to the same file. Um, and, and ultimately, it decides that a file has changed by comparing content hashes. Right. And I'm using uh, SHA-256 for the uh, the hash algorithm. Um, the upload algorithm's a little bit interesting, and the uh, the main uh, thing that's a little clever about it is the the prioritization scheme. And, and trying to efficiently implement a priority queue of uh, you know that's very large turned out to be kind of uh, uh, fun. And by large, I mean for example, on my desktop machine, there are just shy of a million files on that, and that's. You know, not anything particularly unusual, um, especially on Unix-type systems, which tend to have lots and lots of, of small files. So you've got you know this job queue for after an initial scan with a million entries in it, and uh, you got to calculate a priority on each, and then choose the uh, the, the highest priority ones and, and upload them first. Um, so do you keep the entire queue in RAM? No. No, that's that's what makes it interesting. If you could just load the whole thing in memory, then that wouldn't be a, that much of an issue. But it seemed uh, it seemed like a bad idea to assume that I could just keep all of that in uh, in core. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, I, I I built kind of a, a clever little system that I really enjoyed, but I'm going to throw it away, and. Uh, Replace it with a, um, a SQLite database. It's uh, not nearly as as uh, cool, but but it has a lot of advantages to it. Um, the biggest one, the biggest one being when I started thinking hard about about how I could reliably mark files in the in the job queue as completed, and uh, deal with with all of the issues around. Well, what happens if the machine crashes while I'm doing this? And, and Making sure that my file stays consistent, I decided I just didn't want to deal with that. Um, upload prioritization. The uh, the the you know you can plug in any prioritization scheme here. The, the basic system is we calculate a priority value, just a numeric value, and higher means more important. So you know any any scheme you can come up with to plug in there you can use. This is the uh, the scheme that I've implemented initially, and which I think should probably work pretty well, um, user files are weighted heavily. 
um, newer files get preference over older files. Uh, the theory being that uh, if a file's been around for a long time, it's probably going to be around for a long time, you know, into the future. So we can we can back it up later. And then also uh, larger files get preference, excuse me, smaller files get preference on the theory that it's better, you know, if you have to pick, it's better to upload a whole bunch of small files than, than uh, a large file. Um, probably would be a good idea to, uh, to, figure, to add a, a little bit more in here to do things like uh, um, maybe, maybe uh, in my case, I'd probably want to uh, favor um, .cr2 files which are, are uh, raw uh, photo images from my, my digital camera. Um, those are the, actually on, on my computers, that, that's probably the most important. I've got some stuff for work too, but you know, whatever. Um, but my, uh, my photographs are, are important to me. So obviously the, the prioritization can be, can be tuned in, in whatever way makes sense. Um, this is the approach I'm taking to begin with. Um, uh, dealing with unstable files is also kind of interesting. How do you how do you back up a file that's changing? Um, ideally, you have a file system that supports snapshotting, and you don't have to, right? But given that uh, you may not have that, how do you deal with it? Um, and there's a couple of different problems that can show up. One is it can actually be changing while you're trying to hash it, you know, and and uh, and, and scan to find to 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 uh, store the the file metadata. Um, and if that happens, and I, I do that by, by looking at the uh, the m time before and after doing the hash. And if that m time has changed then there's absolutely no point in continuing, right? I have no idea what I've got. I just calculated a hash value. Probably the file is now different from what that hash value represents. Um, and so my, my approach to, to handling that is to ultimately copy the file somewhere else, um, which I may still get a copy of a file that's being changed, but it's the best that I can do. To, uh, to get a, a stable uh, pile of bits that, that I can then hash and, and back up. There's also the issue that what if the file changes between the time the scanner looks at it and hashes it and the time the uploader gets around to trying to, uh, to upload it, particularly if it, you know, maybe months later. Um, so the uh, so I I also try to address that one interesting thing to note about the decision to separate scanning and uploading is that uh, backups will end up with dangling links, right? I'll have dangling pointers in my in my backup snapshots uh, that are referencing files that I never was able to back up because by the time I got to it the content had changed. I was going to ask about that, that concept. I know a lot of Versioning, I've, I've used Git and Mercurial, something that takes a snapshot as a whole. The thought is I need as a transaction, if I don't have a snapshot of all of the changes, I don't want any of them because the new source will be broken. And that's also true in many applications. If I change one DLL, I can't, I can't change just one DLL and not change everything that was with it. Is there any concept of, of sets? 
Yeah, so the, the question is, is there any concept of, of grouping uh, changes so that I get a snapshot that's consistent, right, from the moment in time? And that's a big part of why I focus so much on trying to, to squish this scanning time down as, uh, to make it as narrow as possible so that the, the set of file hashes in that backup snapshot represent a consistent set of data. Now, I may not actually be able to back all of that data up, right? I may actually, I may end up with, with uh, hashes in that backup log referring to file content that, that I didn't get backed up, I can't recover, so I end up with these dangling links. But at least I do know that whatever I do have links to was from that interval. And, and it should be the case that once you get caught up, right, the big problem is during the initial backup. But, but once you get that initial backup completed, then uh, um, your, your backups won't take very long and you'll actually get, you know, you shouldn't have too many dangling links and you get all that data. On that same concept, could there be a possibility of configuring it so that if it tried to do it and it found something broke, could it unroll it back like you do in a database where it says, okay, roll back the transaction? Well, you could uh, just discard a backup snapshot that has dangling links. Um, in fact, well, I haven't been planning to discard them. What I have been planning to do is uh, ultimately when I implement the, uh, the, the backup browser that allows you to, to see the set of backups that are out there and available, um, is to just indicate you know, which ones are are completely available and which ones are missing elements. With my backup system, uh, it's based on RDIF backup. Um, I noticed that if I have a problem, I'm backing up to an external hard drive, if I have a problem like I kicked a USB cable out and it wants to roll it back, sometimes it can actually take longer to do the rollback than it does to do the incremental backup. So it seems like it might be a win to just go for the eventually Well, yeah, it definitely will do that, um, and I didn't talk about that, but if the uploader notices that the current file content does not agree with the hash that it has in its job queue, then it considers that file to be unstable. It adds it to a list of unstable files so that the, the next time the, the, the scanner runs, it will make sure to get another job for that to get that file backed up. And the scanner will actually also copy that file off somewhere else so that it won't change again before the uploader gets to it. Right. Right. Yeah. I, and then that actually creates some complications with, okay, where am I going to copy it to? Well, how much space can I use there? What happens when that gets full? And it creates a bunch of, of issues. But, but um, I've put a lot of thought into how to structure that so that I can make absolutely sure that eventually that file will get backed up, right? that, it, that it will not get missed no matter what. Even if it's changing constantly, like it's a log file or something that's being written to twice a second, um, it will eventually get backed up.
and actually files that are based on the uh, prioritization algorithm, files that are changing frequently um, get high priority, right? Because they're they're new, and so they'll, they'll tend to get uploaded more quickly. You're going to have any kind of like on CBS, you can say you can tell it these the following files in this pattern ignore them; they don't count. Is there going to be something like that? I do have I do have that um, actually already in the code. Um, you can specify uh, regular expressions on either directories or file names, and uh, it will ignore based on those. Um, that's you know part of the the advanced configuration, um, not what I expect expect uh, the uh, the common user to use. So as I said, I'll have uh, issues with dangling pointers. One of the interesting areas that uh, one of the unexpected problem areas, I guess I should say, turned out to be file names. Um, file names are a pain in the butt. <laughs> um, basically, because of, of encoding issues. You know, what the, you got this, when you ask the operating system for the file name, it gives you a string of bytes. What do those bytes represent? Well, it depends on the file system encoding. Um, well, it's not too bad on Windows uh, because at least the NT series of, of Windows operating systems uses um, uh, UCS 16 for all file names, right? So they're all valid Unicode, and you know that. Um, Linux, who knows what you're going to get? You know, most uh, most modern Linux distributions use UTF-8 as the default encoding. But you, users can override it. They can set their own encoding in their dot profile or whatever. It's not that uncommon, especially if, uh, if you're like me and you work with people from all over the world. I, I found that I had files on my hard drive. I could not figure out what they were encoded in. Um, I tried every encoding that Python offers to try and decode those file names and, and uh, got nothing. Um, I had some other files that I eventually did manage to figure out, but mainly because I knew they were from Korea. I was able to figure out which of the, uh, the, the Korean encodings were, were used. So the, um, the big problem uh, you know, if you, can, if you can just treat it as a string of bytes, then there's no issue. Right? Just save the string of bytes, restore the string of bytes, everything's fine. But if you want to get a little more ambitious and say, well, I would like to be able to do a backup from this system and a restore onto that system, right? And I would like to get some kind of meaningful file names when I, uh, when I do the restore, then uh, it gets to be a little more challenging. So the, uh, the solution, let's see, I, uh, yeah, so the solution I settled on is uh, I take the, the byte string from the file system. I uh, try to decode it using the file system encoding that, that I get by asking Python sys.getFileSystem encoding. I have no idea how accurate that is likely to be. <laughs> um, on my system, it, t it gives me UTF-8, and that's you know what it's supposed to. So it works there. I know it works on Windows, and I know it works on OS X, which also uses UTF-8, by the way. So I try that, 
If that succeeds, then we have a valid Unicode string, right? A Python Unicode string. So I can encode that as UTF-8, store it off into my, into my backup log, and I can have something that when I do a restore, I can you know, convert it back into Unicode and then convert it to the, to the local file system encoding, whatever that is. If it's not valid, then uh, the step three is kind of interesting. This was suggested by somebody on the uh, All My Data mailing list, and I thought it was kind of clever. Uh, it turns out that every possible byte value is a valid Latin 1 character, right? Um, so if you say, let's just assume this thing is Latin 1, decode it with that, then we get a, a, a string of some Unicode glyphs. I don't know what they are. doesn't matter. But at least it gives me a nice thing that I can then encode into UTF-8. And uh, I also store that with a flag so that I know that it's, it's, a, it's a raw encoding. And I know to reverse the process and go through Latin 1 again, pulling it out. So if I can't decode the, uh, the, file, the, the file name with the file system encoding, then basically I just do this so I can retain the raw bytes right, and, and be able to restore them. Um, which may or may not mean anything on the target platform for the restore, but what can you do? Um, yes, it will be valid. Uh, well, no, it actually, well, it may not, yeah, as it says at the bottom. See if the file system will accept it. <laughs> if it won't, then... Uh, Well, as I said, if it doesn't, what my code does, it says, it says, okay, we'll decode it with UTF-8, which gives me back this series of Unicode glyphs that are the Latin 1 decoding. And uh, then I'm just going to encode that with the file system encoding and say, there you go. <laughs> it's probably going to be garbage, but it's, uh, it's the best I can do. Um, Right, so that uh, that pretty well covers everything. I have some slides on some of the key uh, to-do items that are outstanding. Um, to date, I'm not actually uploading files. <laughs> I have I probably spent way too much time on on uh, building and tuning the heck out of the scanner. I really focused a lot of effort on trying to make it very efficient. Um, the nice thing is that uh, since this is a hobby project, if I find it really fun to spend a lot of time tuning the scanner, I can do that. Um, so my, my next step actually is to, uh, to, to implement actual upload uh, processing. Um, and to do that, I'm going, I've decided to use, uh, rather than using the internal Tahoe API, I'm going to use their web API. So basically, uh, just do HTTP puts to the uh, uh, little web server that's built into the Tahoe node and uh, add files that way. Um, mainly because I started looking into the Tahoe code and it confused the heck out of me. <laughs> I, I'm beginning to understand Twisted, but it's pretty twisted. Um, haven't done anything yet on Restore. Um, I have this... Uh, this really cool idea about what I eventually want to be able to do for full system restorers, which is to have a bootable live CD where you just bring it up, put in that gigantic string, right, that, uh, that is the, uh, gives you the access to the, to the right uh, 
uh, Tahoe directory node. Yeah. And there's some challenging things with that. I know, you know, I'm not sure. I think I know how to deal with the HAL.DLL issue, if you guys are familiar with, with that. During the Windows install process, it actually generates dynamically this DLL that's customized to the hardware. And uh, so I think I, ha I know how to deal with that. I'm assuming that the registry actually exists in a file somewhere, so that if I back up everything, I'll get it. I don't know that that's really true. Does anyone know? It is in a file? Yeah. <laughs> Several files, okay. <laughs> I, I used to work on a project that used that same mechanism. Registry is actually, an op it's actually a database that's downloaded by Oracle. It's called Berkeley, and then it's called SleepyCat now. Oh, they use, they use Berkeley DB, huh? So, it, so that the registry is actually, it, it's actually a licensed copy of SleepyCat. Huh. So cool. It's just Where is it? It's just stored in a bunch of files. You don't you remember can, you where make, in the. So you can make your own. You make you can make your own little mini registry that has nothing to do with the central. Right. Then anyone know where that registry lives, though? I no. All over the space for that thing. I haven't seen it. I don't know. When, when we did it, we just put it on our own directory that's just files. Just basically. Right, but you were doing your own thing. Well, and the central Windows one, it's just a bunch. It's just a bunch of files. It's actually, I believe, it's merging a bunch of them together. I'm sure it lives somewhere under C colon Windows, um, somewhere down in there. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's a good bet. <laughs> oh, yeah? Oh, cool. Did you uh, ask Google? Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't cared enough to ask Google, so... Right, because those are open. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I haven't, uh, I haven't addressed that, and and I and I don't really even know how I'm going to. <laughs> um, yeah, especially if I can't, if I can't even read them. You know, I don't need to be able to to update them, but if I can't even read them, that's a that's a problem. Um. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it, th there are backup systems that, that work, so uh, there must be some way. There's also some changes that I'm, I'm planning to make to, to Tahoe. One of them is I mentioned that uh, by default it will use the local storage server as one of the storage servers when it's uh, spreading out uh, file shares. Um, I should mention, by the way, uh, speaking of uh, cool stuff that all my data does, kind of clever stuff, the way they select which peers to uh, upload shares to is, is kind of interesting. They take the, uh, the encryption key for the file that they're uploading, and uh, they use that as a as a keyed had to to key a hash, and they hash all of the uh, node IDs. Each peer in the system has an ID, so they, they hash all of them. Um, so they get a uh, you know a keyed hash of each node ID, and then they just sort those, and they start at the top of the list. So every file generates a unique 
uh, you know, a uniquely ordered list of peers. Um, Again, based on, its content. Based on the content. Huh. Right, yeah, so kind of clever. Um, yeah, and then item three is another another thing down the road a ways, one that I want to do. And this is this is my thought about how to handle um, backing up laptops that are that are intermittently connected, is to provide an inexpensive way to get a uh, a Tahoe node in your house that is always on and always connected by taking a, a, a Linksys router or something like that and putting a custom firmware on it and then attaching a, a bunch of storage to it. One thing you might consider is something like that. Uh, a friend of mine, well, co-worker of mine, I'll put it that way, he actually just purchased what they call the Apple Extreme or something. Uh -huh. and it's basically a wireless device with uh, USB ports on it. Something like that might be the way you go about Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then that's basically the the same concept. I mean, if I can take a, a little uh, fifty dollar wireless router, uh, put uh, a custom Linux firmware on it, attach with USB uh, a terabyte or two of, of disk space, then uh, got that kind of a node. What's that called? Freenas, though, is Free you need a physical machine to run it. Like, if you want to have low power consumption, which is something that I consider like, really important in that sort of thing, you don't want to run that machine all the time to basically store the data. I mean, you don't just run it every so often, and you can access it from wherever. Um, that would be a really nice way to go. But, and I've used Freenas, so I like, understand it a little bit. And it's pretty cool. It really is. But, um, right. But it's on a regular PC. Yeah, it's just yeah. a regular PC. Like it's a bootable CD type thing, and you can install it if you want. But it's well, like you run it on the OLPC, right? Yeah, there you that go. That actually yeah. would be a great way to do it. Yeah. Plug in a USB cable. <coughs> yeah. On the right hand three. side of that thing, you get three terabytes. <laughs> a terabyte per USB. Hey, you get buy two terabyte discs. Yeah, you can well, buy the. I say like the MyBooks, right? That's, That's kind of like the format I was thinking you might build. It's a backup tool that doesn't. Right. Is that Matt? So I guess there's sort of, in my mind, at least two different ways of backing up. And one would be like, I want my terabyte disk that backs up locally. Have you thought about like a two-stage backup? Or I mean, the third one I thought just on like, you know, plug in my local system and back up my local system just on that. Or are you just thinking, I'm just going to have everything um, actually, my my yeah, my idea is is kind of a combination of this and this. Uh, so the idea is if I can have like a like a a small you know power efficient device with plenty of storage attached um, that can has enough storage that can act as a backup helper, so that I can run a scan you know on my laptop, have it. Identify what's changed, dump the data as fast as it can go, 
right, up to that machine, which will we'll store it all locally on its drive, and then we'll start pushing it out to the grid to get that, uh, you know, the remote backup, the off-site backup going. Available now for only 99 Yeah, you know, it seems like they're, if uh, somebody wanted to, to do it, there could be a, there could be a, a business here. Yeah, a product I worked on that was a little, that followed some of these same ideas, one of the things that we had on the, on the laptop is it had a virtual central file server. And so it was sending all of the deltas to that. And, and so the moment you hooked up to the network, boom, everything just streamed across because it, it, it already had everything all queued up ready to transfer. Mm -hmm. It didn't have to go dig through the file system to see what had changed. It was already doing that. Right. So, so either the you, know, you could have a system where the scan is already run, or even better, if you were using something like the uh, the OS 10 FS events uh, logging system, um, it's just a matter of going out and looking at the log. Oh, this is all the stuff that's changed. In our case, that's more or less how it works. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. The 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 FS events infrastructure, of course, is you know part of the OS and it's just there. So, um, to finish up, just a, a couple of I thought you know besides all this uh, kind of more theoretical stuff, it might be interesting to talk about some uh, some little interesting bits of Python code that I uh, uh, wrote and and uh, came across. Um, I don't know, this this maybe everybody here is, you know, probably much more experienced with Python than I am, and this is not that interesting, but it was interesting to me. Um, so this uh, this function right here uh, is kind of kind of fun. I I uh, I really like generators. Generators rock. All kinds of, of really cool and efficient stuff that you can do with them. In this case, we have a generator that takes a list of iterators. Each of these iterators has to produce values in sorted order. And then it produces uh, what's essentially an iterator that gives you the values from all of those lists merged together, so doing a merge sort, right? And uh, that's. I actually store backup snapshots as deltas from you know one another. So this is how I, I do the, the merging of those backup uh, logs, I call them, in order to get a, a backup snapshot. And there are some interesting things I thought about this code. This is not actually uh, the, uh, the first version I wrote by any means. Um, and in fact, I, I, I snitched a lot of the ideas uh, in this code from a, a very similar one that I found out on the net. But it has a couple of interesting things. Um, the, uh, the, the most interesting one, uh, to me anyway, is this, this concept here of uh, an else on a four. Does anyone use that? Yes. Yeah? I, 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 when I, I really wonder. I, um, I used, years ago, when I was a uh, you know, younger more arrogant programmer. Um, not saying that I'm not arrogant now, but <laughs> more arrogant. Um, I, I really reveled in, in, in extremely clever things. And I've since learned that that's a bad idea. And so I, I try very much not to write uh, code that is clever and non-obvious. And I really wonder whether or not that else falls into the category of something that should be avoided. Um, comments? <laughs> okay. Does everyone know what it does? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's... Yeah, it's... And, and conceptually, conceptually, what does it mean to say for else? I, what it does doesn't really... It's useful, but it doesn't really have any, any uh, you know, meaning to me. <laughs> yeah, so what it does is uh, the else gets executed if the body does not break, right? So basically, if the loop completes, then the else gets executed. If the loop isn't allowed to complete because of a break, then it does not. Then, then do the else. Yeah, that that would seem to make more sense. Yeah. In in this case, it 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 definitely makes for some very uh, compact code. Um, obviously, this for loop can never execute more than once. Right? It it does one thing and then breaks. And the reason for doing that is just because iterator may or may not be empty. If it is empty, then what's going to happen when I call you know, next on it is I'm going to get a stop iteration exception. So I have to put the you know, try, accept, and, and to handle that. And, and this turns into several more lines of code. Um, but. Uh, by by doing this this do one operation and break, I can let Python deal with all that stuff about handling the the stop iteration. The same thing is used up here, except without the uh, without the else. I think there's another idiom where you guarantee that the next won't break. It also Right, right. So uh, there's. Uh, there's one interesting uh, and possibly bad set of code. <laughs> and this is a more straightforward piece of code, but but just one that I I found to be very simple and very useful. And actually, I've implemented stuff like that in in C++ before, but uh, it uh, it makes some things very nice to have iterators that you can push stuff back into. Take a value. Oh, I didn't want that yet. You know, shove it back in. And uh, so this is just a few lines of code that accomplishes that quite nicely. Um, which the combination of those two things allows me to do this uh, backup log merging uh, fairly, fairly nicely. So I have my, my merged iterator at the top that takes the set of backup log iterators and combines, does the merge sort operation on them. And uh, so then what, what happens, of course, if I'm looking at a, at a series of backup logs, I may, I may pull the same file out multiple times. Uh, suppose this file is one that changes constantly. So every backup scan finds a different hash value for it, right? And it ends up getting mentioned in every in every backup uh, log as something that needs to be handled. So I may get you know, multiple, if I have 10 different uh, uh, backup logs, I may have the same file name 10 different times. But I only want the latest one. So I can, I can uh, pull a value out of the, the sorted iterator, um, 
just keep going through this loop. I also have this little bit of logic to handle extracting the hash value if, if, I, uh, if I need it. And uh, when, I find, when I find the next file, right, not the one that I'm currently processing, I say, oh, that's not the one I wanted, and I shove it back in the iterator so that uh, I can then get it back out the next time through the loop. The, uh, the pushback iterator cut the, the lines of code here in half and, and made it a lot more, a lot more readable, uh, readable. Sure. So um, that's everything that I had to talk about. I'm uh, surprised we actually got through it all. Yeah. <laughs> Suggestion. I don't, do you know Professor Carter here in the computer science department? I don't. Back in the 90s, he won best of at Comdex doing a Windows-based system that was somewhat similar. And I don't know if he's dealt with that at all since. but might want to see if you can dig out old source code because it was similar concepts a few years ago. It was kind of a bit ahead of its time, and while it wasn't as sophisticated, it was um, well accepted. It was Comdex. Hmm. I don't think it sold so well. I don't know what was his there. name? John Carter. Carter. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I don't. Uh, I don't know anybody down here. I I graduated from Weber. Um, and actually, in uh, in math, um, I, actually, I, I got both uh, math and CS degrees, but but uh, the the CS was kind of just a side thing. Um, the uh, math was my my main focus, and I still stay in contact with the the math department up there, but not not CS. So, um, and uh, you know, if you want to look at the code such as it is. Um, it's all in a in a Git repository, and uh, there's my email address. Um, yeah, I'll uh, I'll send those to, to Dave and can put them up. So actually, I was going to uh, hand them out. Yeah, yeah, I, I printed out uh, handouts, and I was was actually going to print out copies for everyone, but I ran out of time today, so. Get around to it. Uh, they're great. They really are. They're they're uh, fantastic to work with. Yeah. No. Not only are they good about about that, they're very enthusiastic and very supportive. Um, I've been really impressed at at how helpful they are. And are ready to answer questions and, and take significant amounts of their time to explain uh, intricate details of how stuff works, uh, so that I can I can you know efficiently uh, make use of their code. Um, they're uh, they're bright guys and they're very friendly and very helpful.
can distribute a source code based there for code, but a lot of people use use files for like GIFs or something like that, or just you know, they, they, they edit it. And you, you did it several places, and you need to keep track of which one's the last one in that list. And, uh, is it able to deal with, is it, do your package able to deal with that? Yeah, yeah. So, the, so the question is: Does the does the system deal with with uh, kind of multiple copies of a file that that are in some way related? There might maybe minor edits of one another, and the answer is no. And I've, I've thought about that a little bit and and decided that it's it's just too difficult to try to address. Um, in fact, there's I, I noticed a while ago that an interesting property of of the the uh, the way my system is designed right now is that suppose you had a a file and you moved it from one place to another now, as far as the backup system is concerned it's a different file right that's not a big problem though because as long as the content didn't change um, the uh, the system will will say okay we got to back this up it'll go ahead and try and the, and find out that oh this content is already out in the grid so I don't I don't have to uh, to bother with uploading it um, so a, a result of that is that if you have a very large file and you move it from one place to another run a backup scan before you modify it because if you make a, a modification to it, the hash will change, and then the then the uh, the backup system will have no way to to relate the the two, and it will do a a complete upload. It won't be able to do a, a delta. Um, in order to try and be able to do deltas in those cases, I'd, I'd have to do something like um, like um, trying to guess at which. Uh, File to compute a diff against, right? Which pre-existing signature you could maybe try to, yeah, I, I don't know, you know how you'd how you'd make that any kind of efficient. In in theory, right? If we if we ignore efficiency, what I could do is, for any file that needs to be backed up, I could compute a delta against every signature that I've collected ever, right? And it may even be that it's it's really completely unrelated, but if I can find some signature that gives me a very small delta, you know, I can use it. Um and, and that would that would work great. Um but but of course uh you know computationally doing all of those those uh delta generations and, and comparisons it, it just wouldn't make sense. Well where that could make sense is if like if I have a monolithic piece of source code I make a change, often it's, it's one line of code. If I didn't always treat files as a whole, but maybe beyond a, a certain size that, okay, I'll take a piece, a piece, and another piece, maybe that would work. Yeah, or if you were looking at... Uh, <laughs> yes, or you could not write those 2,000-line functions. And So, and uh, just one, uh, you know, anybody that finds this really uh, fascinating and interesting and would like to help me, you know, I, I uh, absolutely would would uh, be glad for the assistance. So, don't uh, don't all shout at once. <laughs> like you said, I've actually worked on on commercial projects that are somewhat related to this, so I certainly could give you some input on that. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Sean. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.